you know, if you look at your market and your competitive intelligence, you know, so many are looking at their competitors and going, okay, well, this is what we now need to go do. When really it's like, no, look at where you need to gap, where their opportunity is. Like, that's where we need to go and be. That was Adrian Barnes, the founder of Growth Insights. I spoke with Adrian and Ekaterina Howard, also known as Sam, about creating better user segments, aligning web and content strategies, and so much more. I'm your host, EJ Brown, founder of Prism B2B, a marketing consultancy specializing in multimedia content strategies. Thanks for listening. Sam, Adrian, thank you both for joining me on Content Marketing is Dead. I'm going to go ahead and have you both introduce yourself. Uh, Sam, why don't we start with you? If you're at a conference, what is your 30-second pitch to introduce yourself, what you do, and what is your marketing superpower? So I work with growing B2B SaaS startups that need help with speaking to their best customers in a way that would resonate and convert them. If I had to pick a marketing superpower, I'd say it's translating customer research into copy. Yeah, let's come back to that. That's great. Adrian, what about you? How would you introduce yourself? Yeah, so I help early stage B2B SaaS companies find product market fit through understanding their market better, essentially. Um, And if I were to describe my superpower, which is really interesting, I've been thinking a lot about uh, marketing in terms of like your zone of comfort, your zone of genius and the demand of need, essentially. And so my kind of zone of comfort and the genius where it overlines for me is uh, pulling insights and then turning those into like actual growth strategies, actual um, very similar to what Sam just said, like actually pulling information from people pulling information from internal demands, and then turning around and turning that into something that's useful for the organization. Adrian, what what do deliverables usually look like for that? So the deliverables can really vary a little bit depending upon the stage that they're at, how big they are, um, how many customers or users they currently have. Uh, If they are brand new and we're really in a hypothesis stage of saying, is this accurate information? Do we really no, is this a good route to go down? For instance, I just closed a project with a brand new early stage startup. The owner just recently bought it, bought the the SaaS. And he was like, I'm getting some interesting leads that aren't my key demographic. So I need to know, is this worth my time to pursue? So we did five interviews, not a ton, really like low lift kind of stuff. And then from those five interviews, I was able, the hypothesis was, is this a good idea? Should we kind of, is it going to be worth the squeeze essentially? So after those five um, interviews and doing some online social listening and ethnography, that kind of stuff, um, really determined that there was a need and that it could be a low lift. You know, there wasn't going to require a lot of product development or um, new launches. He could kind of tweak a few things in the product um, and that there could be actually really good uh, beneficial revenue for him. Um, So it looked like it's all in a Google Doc or a Google slide. And it's me saying like, here are your questions. Here's what we actually know now. Here's some key highlights from the research. Like people said it would save them time. People said this was a huge pain for them. Or we even found out there was uh, language being used that changed at a certain level of like stage of their growth of their business. So it was like, if they have a CFO, they use these terms differently than if they're an admin or whatever. So you're able to get really clear on, 
what I call relational keywords, just the language being used, and then key segments. If they're a little bit further along and they've got really um, a large customer base, and Sam and I have worked together on these kinds of projects quite a few times um, where we do interviews and it's like, okay, now we can create segments of your audience. And we can say, this is really who your core buyer is. Uh, These are your best buyers. I had a product called Best Buyer Persona where we really segmented according to the job to be done and was able to like teach and tell the um, our clients who their buyers were, why they buy, what their buying triggers were. Like we were able to really get some nuanced information that you're, you don't typically get when you're just kind of doing, uh, you know, whiteboard theory research on like who is our buyer and you're kind of scribbling some ideas down. For sure. So tell me, tell me about some of the projects that you two have worked on together and how did you meet first of all? Sam, how did we? I th- we've just been in the same circles for so long. I think probably copywriting stuff. Like I started off doing content and copy. Um, and then, you know, Sam talks a lot online about their process and the way they approach stuff. And so I was like, okay, this is like, they know what they're talking about. I'm going to, I'm going to definitely pursue and like hook up with them. Uh, so in the best, most professional way, I should say. <laughs> and so we did, um, great interviews. Usually when we have large projects going on, we do 20 at a time. And so for me to be a sole practitioner, 20 interviews, and I'm running two or three projects, it just, that's too much for one person to kind of do. So I pull in the best of the best and that's where Sam came in. Nice. Anyone that you'd like to sort of highlight just to give people a sense of like what those interviews look like when you're, when you're working together and and how those interviews end up turning into copy. So for our projects, they didn't yet turn into copy. When we have worked together in the past, they turned out to the way we kind of handed it off to the client was like, here's some core information. This is kind of things that they're saying. And then here are some recommendations. And then the client then turns around and says, okay, like one of the companies we worked for, which is a public case study, so I can talk about it was web page test, a catch point product. And web page test was a free users, um, tons and tons of users. They probably had thousands, but they had no idea to determine like why people were using. And they knew they had like Home Depot email addresses and target email addresses. And like, so internally they were like, okay, we've got some people who have budget and means, why are they using our product? And then we have like Joe at joedoesseo.com using our product. Why is he using it. Um, so when we went in, we really needed to determine, and it was a pretty complex project from like Sam and I, we really had to determine like, what are the nuances in their usage? How are they using the product? Why do they approach it? And the product itself is a little complicated. Um, and there were just so many different ways that people were using it. So by the end of it though, we determined that there was this one segment of user that had budget, had means, and actually was creating their own dashboards. And so then web page test was able to come back and go, okay, so we could just build a dashboard and these people will buy it and we'll save their data for them. And now we've got, you know, a source of revenue for a product that had historically been free. And then they limited the data that was accessible to the Joe at Joe at SEO.com because they constantly said it's overwhelming. There's too much stuff. I only use this little bitty piece. So by really understanding the nuanced in their, uh, their users and their whole user base, they were able to shrink the amount of access to the SEO, the, like the single individual contributor. And that uh, segment was happier for it 
they were like glad not to have to run through the muck and go through all the data. Um, and then we're actually very pleased to support some of their uh, more, I don't know, more, more mature, the people who had budget, the people who had need, they were able to support them and actually have revenue. So Sam was extremely vital and helpful in that project. Sam, anything to add about this? No, right, we can talk about the nitty gritty of the interviewing, if that's interesting, because I think that's where we started originally. And then we talked about the fun stuff. That is, what do you do with the learnings? But the interviewing is where you really, I mean, that's what sets you apart, right? That's what leads to the, inter- to the learning is, is the effectiveness of the interviews. Is that it? Or even learning who to interview? All of the above and the yes and. I think it's things that are extremely important is first planning, like, what is it that we're hoping to figure out? Who do we need to talk to? And then having an interview guide as opposed to like the set of questions that we must answer because that never works. Right. Yeah. Talk more about that. What does an interview guide look like? Uh, well, I end up with a, we will not be able to fit all of those questions in, but based on what we know about the project, I would love to learn all of those things. And then we kind of go back and forth, prioritize and make sure that we also have time for follow-up questions because mm-hmm. that's where the most important things hide normally. Mm-hmm. Like you don't just get them like presented to you. Right. And Sam will not brag about herself, but where she like really is just so good is in the, the, the pause and the stillness and the like waiting for the good answer and the follow-up of like, okay, hold on. So you said this, now I need a little bit more. And I mean, I would go back, of course, and listen to all of the interviews. And I learned so much, even just like hearing how she would go about the interviews. And it was really interesting. It takes a skilled person not to want to fill the space with silence, like fill the silence with something. Yeah. And how do you make somebody comfortable in that silence? Or do you care about that? Is that, is that something? Yeah. <laughs> Sam's laughing. No, of course I do. <laughs> yeah. I think most of those interviews were on video. So body language and like looking friendly, using a friendly tone of voice. And at the same time, kind of holding that space so that I find that most people, when there is a pause in a conversation, they kind of feel like they need to contribute something more. So I, I tend to just abuse it shamelessly. <laughs> Basically, that's a way of, of drawing people out, right? So when we were going back and forth about ideas for this, um, the one that you two came up with that was really appealing is the persona-driven content and copy versus the top-down I'd like for you both to talk about like, is top down the norm? When you're talking to clients, like do clients tend to come to you once they realize that this is what they're doing and they need to get away from it? Or is there an education that has to happen about like the approach that you've been using is wrong? Interesting. What's your experience, Andrea? Oh gosh. Um, Okay. So it depends on the client. The 
average client who, especially in the kind of space that I do where it's early stage startups. So the founder is usually the one who's hiring me. Um, they're not really skilled yet in marketing. And mm. sometimes they're aware of that educational gap of themselves. And that's why they're reaching out. Um, so in that case, it's easier for me to say, hey, like, this has got to be my approach first. And at the beginning, you know, when I first started, maybe like five or six years ago, it did require a lot of education and it required some kind of like, no, we really have to go through this process. And then I had, you know, you have to kind of be amenable and get access to customer conversations any way you possibly can. You know, when you first start out, it's like, okay, well, then do you have a sales team? Or when you're on a call, can you record it? And I can listen. So you're trying to like find ways to go about it. Um, but once at least in, in my case and probably Sam's as well, you start talking like this is your process publicly. You're very adamant. Like I, we start with customers first. We start with interviews. We start with research. Um, you start to attract the folks who know that that's the best place to begin. So then you don't have to do the hassling. You don't have to like convince them this is the best way to go. They're like, I'm ready to do this. I know that you're the person for the job. So please, like wherever, whatever your process is, it sounds great. Let's do it. Sam, talk about what does top-down marketing look like? And like, are you able to spot it usually? Like if you go to somebody's website or the, even their like LinkedIn profile or something, can you, can you sort of identify like, oh, this is not, this is not customer driven or persona driven. Those are two different questions. <laughs> I can think of an example where it's like painfully obvious, but in terms of copy, like an, an obvious giveaway is like a laundry list of ICPs when we have the we'll market to everyone situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like at this point there's, there's enough conversations about this, that this is slowly going away and folks are more open to starting with a specific ICP that matches their product best. At the same time, even when this is accepted as we're just selling to one specific type of customer. There's still a little bit of tap down that can happen when we're defining, like, what are their pain points? What do they want? How do we talk about this? Top down, it's like all the marketing fluff words that we all love to hate on, from easy to use to all-in-one to the future of the industry. So all of that is... If I get a sense of deja vu, it's probably not customer research driven because mm -hmm. those are just the things that are floating around and get reused when you go to other people's websites and go like, mm, I want to be like Slack. Mm -hmm. Based on your, your experience, your research, what's the value of changing that copy? Do you have a sense of like ROI or, you know, the increase in engagement and stuff that you've, that you've seen with clients. It could be a specific example or averages, like whatever comes with it, whatever is easiest. I mean, that's almost like cheating because I write conversion copies. So most of the time, like I know what happens. Yeah. Uh, and some of the results that I can quote is like three times the average conversion rate for a specific industry or in one case, it was, it was sort of content, but also a long form blog post that was effectively a sales page for the product. And I think we, we got 
I want to say 25 or 15% increase in signups. I think 25. I need to read my own case studies. And that, like that 3X, is that from specific pages or is that like revamping the me- messaging across the board? So with revamping, it's it's not that straightforward, right? And a lot of my projects are website rewrite plus redesign plus like ban- rebranding. So at this point, you cannot attribute all of that to your copy. I mean, that would be ridiculous. Got it. For landing pages, that's definitely much more manageable. Adrian, what are what are signs that you've seen like what do you commonly point out at the early stages like of a relationship with a new client or a prospect that um you're constantly pointing out specific things that like need to change or that um what are common aha moments in the early stages of a relationship? You know, and that can depend upon the engagement that I'm involved in, but let's take the personas, right? Like if we're really coming in, um, I've had folks be like, well, we have within the organization, we have 15 personas. And I'm like, no, you don't. No, you don't. You're not running 15 campaigns. You're not running 15 different ads. You're not testing 15 different messages. You don't. What you have is product has some personas they've created, User, your UX team, your UX design team has created some personas. Uh, your sales team has created some personas and ICPs, and your marketing team's created some personas and ICPs. Now, uh, what we need to do is actually create fewer personas and a stronger segmentation. We need a better way to group these people together. And that's really why I use jobs to be done. Um, it just is, it's better than a demographic kind of grouping. And it really gets to the core of the issue. So one of the main things that I really fight against and kind of what I said was my mission in marketing was to stop people from using like Sally, the sales girl who's 33 and uh, goes to the grocery store on Saturday and drives a red car would be Catwoman if she were a superhero. (laughs) I literally would get those personas when I was a content writer and content strategist. And I would be like, and now what do I write? to Sally. Like, how do I market to Sally? I don't know her. Like, great. Now I can write, you know, my fiction novel, I guess, about Sally. But so I was frustrated. And that's really why, like, I developed the the best buyer persona kind of deliverable. But basically, it's that it's very shallow personas that weren't actionable. Um, Either you know, 800 slides that nobody ever looked at. And like the CMO just sat on their Google drive and like they had to dust off for me when I would ask or, um, you know, one HubSpot template filled in that was like, this is, this is our best buyer with nothing tangible for me to like execute on. Um, so that really became first steps is like, who, who's your real customer? Who are we actually talking to? Let's figure that out first. Mm. Uh, Adrian, I want you to talk about what the difference is between a persona and a segment. And uh, mm. Sam, I want to follow it up with like, then how do you identify then like who gets talked to where? That's a good question. <laughs> um, okay. So a persona and a segment, a segment is like, the act of grouping your audience up, right? Like, so we have these segments, we call those segments personas or ideal customer profiles. Um, Sometimes those are used interchangeably. Some people in some organizations have clarified the difference between the two. 
I don't really know if there's a huge difference. Ideal customer profile seems to be used by sales more, um, and persona seems to be used by marketing more. That's the thing about the biggest extension, I, or uh, yeah, I've seen. Um, and then, so the reason, like how I segment them is really according to jobs to be done. So what we do is we gather all of the folks and the way that I look at um, when I, when I start doing a persona project is we say like, who should we talk to first? How do you even know within the organization who's the best kind of customer to speak to? And I say, you want to talk to three different types of segments of people. Um, You want to talk to your like biggest fans, the ones who've been around the longest, who've bought more, if it's an e, like a D to C, they've spent more money, they're recurring customers, uh, they talk about you on social media in very positive ways. Um, then you want to talk to your newest customers, like who's just recently converted, who's still, it's all fresh in their mind. And then you want to talk to, if you can get them on the phone, um, your biggest enemies, like who hated your product, who like basically left poor reviews, who closed, you know, awful, all of those folks. So if you can talk to those three segments, that's how you can identify who your personas are. And those personas are really um, in-depth and nuanced ways to describe buyers within the organization. So when we segment according to jobs to be done, I say, okay, all of these folks are trying to accomplish this. Now, here are some common job titles they have. Here are some common organizations that they work in or industries that they're in. Here are their roles, their rituals, their relationships, and their responsibilities. So it's like, here's where they sit most likely in the organization. Here's who reports to them, who's here, who they report to, um, their buying process, their entire journey. Uh, we can get really as detailed as we need to, but really what we want to do is answer those internal questions so that it can turn into copy and content and marketing campaigns. And then a quick follow-up to that, like you have these personas, right? That all of a sudden you're condensing the 20 personas across an organization down to the few that can be used across the customer journey. And um, how do you start to think about prioritizing them in terms of just value to a company? That is challenging. What I've seen and been able to do is if the ones who were in that first grouping of like were the best buyers, they can kind of tend to be like, these are the ones who um, stick around the longest. What I've had come out is, you know, we've noticed like, oh, okay, for instance, I worked for um, a D2C shoe company. And it was like, these folks love your shoe. They're great. They'll use it, but they'll probably, they're only going to use it for a short period of time. And like, here's why. And then we found out like, no, these people don't care what the styles you have. They don't care what, what colors you produce. They're buying your shoe every six months. These are your best buyers. So follow them, tend to them. The other folks will come and go. But if you serve this people, these people will, you'll do well. Uh, and so it just kind and I, I hate to say this because it feels cliche. It feels like something researchers say all the time, but it just becomes obvious. You go through the data, you read the insights over and over again, and you're like, oh, these people are devout. And here's how they're segmented. I know that's a vague answer, but that's kind of the best approach and the best way I go about it is finding those best buyers. Okay. So back to Sam, like you're, you're working with a company on copy and content. You have these various personas, you know, or they're catering to different industries or markets or whatever it is. Like 
But you don't want that approach that uh, turning every page into a catch-all. What are the kinds of conversations you have about having specific focuses, you know, across across a website or content? Well, I think what it comes down to is being deliberate and structuring your website well. It helps when there's already a website in place, so it's clear how folks already interact with it. But if we have to go... Okay, so ideal case scenario is that you find out that the job to be done is the same across all those markets, and that solves magically all of your problems. You just focus on that messaging. And you may create like industry-specific pages, but you're not struggling with this one-size-fits-absolutely-everyone messaging on the homepage. Worst case scenario, there is not a lot of overlap. And also there is no clear, this is our best audience. We want to speak to them on our homepage. Like ideally there is something like that, but I find that that sometimes it's hard for startups to confidently prioritize just one ICP. They would sure love everybody to find them on the homepage. And if that's the case, your uh, best bet is to give all of those ICPs a way to find the most relevant information and go from this basically crossroads on the homepage to the part that's the most relevant to them. There's always this dilemma when I'm when I'm working with a company on copy, which is not my forte, but sometimes I get stuck doing it. <laughs> It, there's this weird expectation that p- everybody's going to go to the homepage and read the homepage and that if they find it on the homepage, it, it's clear. And that's not always true, right? Like people might completely miss the homepage or they might scroll down halfway through and get bored and move on. And there's so much research that has to go into figuring out how people are using your specific website and your page structure. Do you tend to run tests and like use things like Hotjar and stuff to see how people are using the website when you're when you're working on copy? Yes, absolutely. I feel that Hotjar and Google Analytics, like using them together, is most useful when you need to figure out what is not working. Mm-hmm. So there's this lag once you launch the new copy until you have enough session recordings and heatmaps to see what's actually going on. Until then. There are the ways to test before launching, and this does not always help with a homepage. I feel like with a homepage, <laughs> you just need to see what real users are doing once they land there. I mean, depending on the strategy, like ad strategy or content strategy, this may not be the most important page on the website anyway. Oh. Yeah. Great. <laughs> Talk about that. Like, how did how do you discover that? Or um... depending on where your traffic is coming from, and ideally, you don't have like ninety percent of direct traffic where you have no idea who those people are. Yep, mm. which is painful. Ideally, you can tell where they're coming from, where they land, and what happens next. Mm-hmm. And I've had cases where it, like, homepage was there for sure, but. Based on the search terms, it was the folks that were already brand aware that were landing there. So there's drastically less work there. They already know what they want, why they're here. They just need a quick confirmation that this is the right place. But for organic traffic, that's a much more fun 
challenge, especially if it's content driven. Like, okay, they read the post. What's next? How can we get them to go to the proper web pages and start their journey to conversion? Yeah, that is fun and challenging <laughs> because you, you can't control like click here next. You know, you, you don't create a funnel, a very narrow funnel. Do you have common tactics? Uh, I have a common rant actually to go with this because I find that very often like content is SEO driven and like we just want traffic driven. And then it may be extremely hard to logically connect to the product and the offer. So I think that talking to content folks and making sure there is a strategy that works for the website as a whole is probably the most important and sometimes missing piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is that your experience too, Adrian? I, I can definitely see it. Sometimes when I've come in um, as a content strategist, it looks like the blog is completely separate from the website. Like it's got its own branding, it's got its own name, um, you know, and that kind of has been perpetuated by the every B2B SaaS company should be a media company uh, theory out there, which I don't necessarily agree with so much um, unless you just have, I mean, I don't know, let's look at media companies. Are they doing great? No, not so much. They're going out of business. So maybe we shouldn't operate like that. Um, I feel like there, you know, people are afraid for content to convert. They're afraid to talk about the product and the content. Um, they're afraid to break the third, the fourth wall, you know, and like speak to the reader. They're afraid to tell personal stories in content. I know, like, I've written some stuff where, um, you know, made some metaphors about like my own personal travels, how it's related to such and such. I don't remember what it was. This was years ago, but it's just like, don't be afraid to kind of be a human who's writing, but be branded to the product at the same time. Yeah, I definitely see where it's not incorporated in the overall strategy. And I think some of that's because of a siloed organization. If you're siloed and content sits over there and demand gen sits over here and product marketing sits over there, then, and you know, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. It's easy to look disjointed and actually be disjointed. Yeah, totally. I mean, the disjointed part ends up with not just multiple like external brands coming through, but then multiple strategies coming on where you have no sense of ROI because you're not, you're not doing things together. So, and no sense of user experience, no yeah. sense of customer experience, no sense of like, what is the actual first touch point? You know, you mentioned where 90% could be direct uh, traffic um, recently read Oh, I don't know if it was Spark Toro's article or if they participated in the research. I can't remember at this point, but I know Rand and Amanda uh, Natividad have been talking about it a lot lately, but like the effects of dark social mm -hmm. and not in a bad way, but in like a, you're not going to be able to attribute that traffic. It's going to look like it's a direct link when really it was somebody on Slack, like what direct traffic is going to go straight to a random product landing page? Not much, you know, it's, very few or to a specific blog post, you know, that stuff's being shared on social. And so trying to find those connections, you know, which is why I think you should also be really into social listening and understanding like where your buyers and audience sits 
you know, what communities are they participating in and try to be there as well because they're talking about you whether you realize it or not. So I've got two, two more questions for you both. The first one is what is one thing that you, if you could change it, you think B2B marketing would just be so much better? Just one. I know that's right. what I was going to say too. Yeah. Just, one thing. just focus on one today, anyway. Like plenty of that needs to change. Um, okay. Well, then I think, and honestly, I think I made a dent, and at least, or the the overall mindset changed in the last like three to five years about what a persona was. Most companies now aren't just segmenting by demographic at least at a past a certain maturity, right? Like maybe you're doing it at the beginning. Um, I don't know if I had any impact in that. I kind of hope that maybe I did just banging that drum loudly, but maybe I did. And then, so really getting clear on personas, actually getting nuanced. That's something that I think could continue to change. And I hope does. And then just not being afraid to like get out of a B2B box. You know, if you look at your market and your competitive intelligence, you know, so many are looking at their competitors and going, okay, well, this is what we now need to go do when really it's like, no, look at where you need to gap, where their opportunity is. Like, that's where we need to go and be. Those are the two things I would change in B2B. Doesn't mean I get to have two. Sure. Two. I, I forgot it. Just one. Yeah. Break the rule. It's fine. I broke it. Okay. So I think... CTAs that are mm. like CTAs and the sales process that's very almost selfish, like startups. Yes, are, I am. You must talk to our sales team before you can do anything else. Those are breaking the conversion rules. Like, what's in it for me? Why would I want to talk to your sales team? Uh-huh. And for some audiences, this is just not going to happen. If that doesn't happen, you're losing them just because you insist on this sales-driven approach that might not even fit your audience. And the second one, since we're sort of sometimes talking about content, is newsletter of like newsletter as an offer, newsletter as a product blocks. Like if you're starting one. If you're investing in content marketing and email marketing and publishing a newsletter, maybe sign up to get news and updates is not what you want to lead with. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Wait, you have to follow that up. Like what, you know, what do you recommend? So this is a hard one. And this again goes to knowing your, your audience and what they care about. Like, why would I want another email newsletter in my inbox? Yeah. What do I get out of this? And I think yesterday I posted a little video of the Cards Against Humanity email newsletter sign up block. Yeah, that was a great example. It's so on brand. It's so like even the text switching visuals, they're also on brand because this is a fill in the blanks thing. Mm-hmm. And also there's enough curiosity gap that like I might go back and sign up even though I don't really care about the releases, but they're mentioning all the crazy things you're, they're doing that make me want to find out a little more. I mean, B2B SaaS may not be the cards against humanity ever, and I'm fine with that, but there has to be something that you can give to your audience that they would care about. Mm-hmm. 
So who do you want to talk to and what's the best way to reach out? It could be like, who's your ideal client? Like who are you interested in collaborating with? Like who, who do you want more of in your network? Oh, this is a good question. So I just kind of posted this on LinkedIn. I was like, look, I'm, I'm looking to expand my network. Um, You know, when you've been doing this for, I think this is, I'm almost on eight years and it's always been on Twitter and LinkedIn. You start to really be like, wait a second, the same people are supporting the same people. And those, so like my network, I'm in a bubble and I began to be very aware of my bubble. And I was like, as a consultant, it's important to continuously expand. So I'm looking to talk to early stage B2B SaaS founders who are have a great product, believe in the product and the product serves a specific community who's really in need and is looking to go to market. They're ready for marketing and they need help with it. That's who I'm looking to connect with. So reach out, Twitter, LinkedIn, slide in those DMs, my friend. Sam? Same on expanding the network because LinkedIn tends to just do the, the same posts over and over again, and it's more fun when there's new people. Yeah. Uh, in terms of folks, I would love to see... In my DMs, I'd say bootstrapped or Series A and app startups that realize that either their old messaging is not working because here we go again on certain times, or they want to be more efficient and suspect that their copy isn't working because it's not optimized to convert. Sweet. All right. There will be links to both of your LinkedIn's and Twitter's. You're both on Twitter. For the time being, Kalu. For the Twitter time feels being. like one of those yeah. places where I just don't know where it's headed. <laughs> so I'm there today. I feel you. Right. Yeah. So maybe maybe play it safe and be uh, reach out on LinkedIn for now. But um, yeah, this has been great. Any any last thoughts you want to leave people with? I- just thank you, EJ. This was really good. And I think... You know, it's a lot of people aren't seeing the the full cycle connection, especially kind of where Sam and I sit in that early stage. So, um, yeah, understanding how knowing your customer really penetrates and applies to everything. So, I appreciate this conversation. Yeah, thanks for having us. Great. Yeah, thanks for joining.